Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Annette Joseph-Gabriel, the author of Reimagining Liberation, How Black Women Transformed Citizenship in the French Empire, and the book was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020. Hi there, Annette. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can I ask how you're doing in this extraordinary, unprecedented moment? Oh gosh, what, what? <laughs> is that too big a question? I mean, it's it's a it's a huge question, but also you know I'm just just hanging in there. I feel like a an observer in world events, which is a, a strange and surreal feeling. But yeah, I'm I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. I hope you're doing well as well. I'm doing just fine. So I'm in Vancouver, in Canada, Annette, and you are in. Ann Arbor? Yes, exactly. So you're at the University of Michigan in the French, um, is it French and Francophone Studies Department? Um, So it's our Romance Languages Department, um, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool because, you know, we're um, French, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese just kind of all together. Um, It's Mm -hmm. the first time I've been in that kind of configuration, and I like it very much. That's great. So, Annette, what brought you to the study of French Empire? Gosh, um, I think like most people, probably the study of the French language. So I, I grew up in Ghana. Um, so although it's an English-speaking country, we're surrounded by um, French-speaking countries. So, you know, sure. Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso, a lot of our neighbors are French-speaking. And so we learned some French in school as a sort of a, a pan-Africanist kind of um, ethos, which I find really interesting because my my learning the French language really had nothing to do with France, right? It was all hmm. about, I guess, former French colonies. And then ultimately kind of branched out into a study of the legacy, right, of, of colonialism, not just in those former colonies, but also in France. Um, so that's sort of the, that was, that was the, the beginning um, of this process for me. I came at this through language. Well, my next question was going to be, how did you come to this particular project? But I feel like you've kind of <laughs> answered it. Um, but maybe you have more to say about how you ended up writing about Black women and citizenship. Yeah, so I think, you know, the that starting point of thinking about um, the legacies of, of French colonialism kind of got me on, on this path to thinking more specifically about the women whose stories I hardly, um, you know, saw or read about as I was studying mm-hmm. this, this history, this linguistic and cultural, um, you know, tradition. So, you know, I, like most people, I started out um, working on negritude, um, you know, thinking about Amy Cézien, Leopold Senghor, and being really struck by the dearth of scholarship on women. So, you know, yeah. someone like Tracy Sharpley Whiting's book, Negritude Women, was really pathbreaking, specifically because, um, you know, it looked at the ways that Black women were were present and crucial to these intellectual movements, you know. So I began really this research with one really simple question, which was, where were the women? I don't know why I was thinking about it in spatial terms, not, you know, what were the women doing, but where were they? Um, and I think that thinking about presence um, and visibility in that way is a thread that still runs through the book by the time I get to this final output of this work that I've been doing for a while now. So, Annette, you begin the book with um, a story, the story of your own acquisition of French citizenship in, was it 2017? Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that experience, I guess, a few years ago and the process, I'm sure the very long process that led up to that, kind of illuminates for you the the themes that you're tackling in the book? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in, in the prologue, I talk about the fact that I um, I got I acquired French citizenship while I was writing this book. Um, 
and that that process was <laughs> I'm laughing because like just trying to figure out the words to to articulate uh-huh. what the process was like. Um it was it I felt very much like both an insider and an outsider to the workings of sort of French immigration policy and how that is manifested in the everyday lives of people. So I'll give you an example. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the steps in that process is to prove that you speak French and you have to prove your knowledge of French to an acceptable degree, right? Acceptable (laughs) as defined by the French administration and the French government. So um, you have to take a French language exam. Um, You know, at the time I was living in Marseille, and, and I went to the OFI, you know, where, where this language exam is administered. Um, you take a written exam and um, there's also an oral component where you speak to a French person and then they kind of grade you. And, and the, reason, the reason I'm sort of saying this tongue in cheek is because I'm a French professor. <laughs> that is so weird. <laughs> right. so, and, and, and it was interesting for me to inhabit, you know, to inhabit this, this persona because I, I guess... The, the the way that one is defined to fit in and to be French enough to have the documentation, right, that says that you're French enough, um, is, is to also demonstrate one's linguistic assimilation. So I was hyper aware, particularly in the oral interview portion of that language exam, of the kind of accent that I had to put on and perform in order for my French to be deemed as acceptable. In other words, my grammar and my vocabulary could be at the very same level, but if I had a, if I used a different accent, right? If, my, if I use the accent that I grew up speaking French in, with in Ghana, having learned French from my teachers from Togo, Côte d'Ivoire, etc., that, that accent would be marked and received and understood in a particular way. That'd be different from if my accent was inflected with sort of an American anglicized accent versus right. something that's understood to be a sort of a, an, in quotes, neutral Parisian French accent, right? So just <laughs> in that process of, of getting citizenship, I mean, there were so many elements, um, you know, that I, I take up in the book and that resonate with the experiences that the women in the book also had. But language stands out to me as one of the key sites at which the contest for belonging and legitimacy was playing out. And that was very much the case also, you know, in this in this interview moment when I was, um, you know, undergoing the process for citizenship. I'm really interested in the work that the book does to use and to, to kind of explore the stories of Black women as they, as they demand the rights of citizenship um, in different ways, the different women that you speak about, and there are seven of them, and the ways in which, in your words, are to, to make and unmake the French Republic, a country that sees itself as white and claims to be colorblind. Um, so I want to get into all of the terminology and sort of the conceptual stuff that's in that phrasing. But maybe we'll just start with, you know, the when. (laughs) So we'll get to where are the the women, but when are the women in this book? Yeah, so I I think it really wasn't until I had drafted all of the chapters that it became apparent to me how crucial World War II was. Um, You know, and I mean, there's scholarship out there on, I'm thinking um, personally about Fred Cooper, for example, um, Mm. you know, who writes about decolonization in Africa and the impact of World War II. Um, You know, so there there is that scholarship out there. But in thinking specifically about women, right, there's a there's a dimension to to war. There's a dimension to the world war um, that 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 ha- that that has an impact on women's presence um, and roles in public life, right? So it's not so much that women sort of erupt into the public sphere because of the war, but mm. that their presence in the public sphere um, starts to be understood in particular ways because of war, right? So you have, for example, sort of national level discourses about, you know, men going off to war, um, you know, about men dying in war and about women being left behind as the ones to continue to piece the nation together, as the ones to um, enter the labor force, as the ones to hold the family together. And all of those discourses are mobilized in particular ways in the colonial context, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm thinking, for example, about, um, you know, Vichy's um, sort of 
move to replace the French Republican motto of liberty, equality, fraternity, you know, with work, family, fatherland, um, in whatever order they, they imagine that to, to, to play out. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the importance of gender to that narrative, right, to understanding and constructing a French nation in that moment What's happening in that moment during the World War is that, or World War II, is that, you know, women's place and presence in public life becomes a battleground, right? One of the battlegrounds on which legitimacy, political legitimacy is going to be fought for. So, you know, Charles de Gaulle is going to try to construct this political identity as the guarantor of women's liberation, um, you know, after a particularly repressive, right, um, repressive moment of the war. Mm -hmm. And so French women get the right to vote in 1944, and then in 1946, the overseas departments, um, you know, I'm thinking particularly about Masik and Guadeloupe in this moment, um, become overseas departments. And the people who are really at the nexus of these two changes are Black women, right? Are women sure. in the colonies. Um, and so the, the World War II becomes this really key moment where on the national on the national stage, the language and the conceptualization of women's presence and roles in public life is um, is being mobilized and used in very particular ways. And so, then women from the colonies are going to try to also work with that language, reframe that language, refuse it, accept it, explode it. Right? They do a variety of things, but they they use that language in order to think about their own agency in mm-hmm. anti-colonial movements at that time. So throughout the book, Annette, you use this terminology of the political protagonist. And I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about how that framing works for you throughout the book, you know, as a follow up to this issue that you just raised about women's agency. Yeah, so um, that term political protagonist, um, you know, in, in the book I write about, um, you know, encountering that term for the first time um, in the work of uh, Dr. Keisha Khan Perry, um, mm. who writes about Black women in Brazil um, and sort of contest over, over space and land and dwelling. Um, and so I first heard her use the term in a talk that she gave, and I found it so helpful and generative because it allowed me to situate my work and to think about my own work at the intersection of multiple disciplines, right? So a protagonist is, is, is a, that's terminology that we encounter primarily in literary studies when we think about the central character in a, in a story, in a narrative. Um, and the women that I'm writing about for me are very much central characters in this mm. narrative, right, of anti-colonialism, um, of World War II. For me, they're not on the periphery and we sort of have to reach to try to bring them in they are they are certainly marginalized in the way that we remember those historical moments, but in those moments they were certainly central to the conversations, the public debates that were happening about what freedom and citizenship could look like. And so, a political protagonist, um, you know, working from um, Keisha Khan Perry's framing allows me to really think about these women's writings, their voices, their work at the intersection of literary studies, um, history, um, and also kind of a, a political, right, sort of theorizing because they, they some of them, right, like Jeanne Vial and Eugenie Ibuitel, for example, were, were a lot less literary, but worked a lot more in the political domain, right? So mm-hmm. I'm analyzing, you know, um, speeches and, and policy and laws that they, um, that they put forward um, for debate on the parliament, on the floor of parliament. And I think that all of those different genres of text offer us different ways and different angles to come at the same question, right? Which was that, that eternal question in the back of my mind is where were the women? They were were in these different genres, they were in these spaces that were literary, that were political, that were social, um, and and so a sort of a, a, a multi multi tooled approach um, to to thinking about their work, um, I think was was very generative and helpful um, for the work that I was trying to do. I'm also really intrigued by this phrase geographies of resistance. So you know, where were the women? That's in terms of spaces of writing, spaces of politics, but also quite literally geographic spaces moving across the Francophone world, back and forth across the Atlantic, thinking in terms of uh, North, Global South. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about the way that the mobility through physical space plays a kind of central role in this project? 
I, I was really intrigued by how often the women that I write about traveled. Um, but also travel is, it's a privileged act, right? You have to, mm-hmm. as, as someone like Eslanda Robeson shows, right, in the last chapter of the book, you know, Black women were denied visas, um, you know, were had their, their passport, um, you know, processing sort of delayed or, um, or denied as a way to stifle that mobility. Um, and so in looking at the challenges that they faced, their mobility and the workarounds that they ultimately um, employed was, was um, I think, one of the ways um, that allowed me to get at what I hope um, emerges in the book is that movement and mobility were not incidental to the work that they did. They were not, you know, sort of um, happy bonuses or pluses to their work. They were fundamental to the ways that they thought about liberation and freedom. Um mm-hmm. And, and mobility took on different forms for these women, right? So travel was one, um, but epistolary exchanges, right? Correspondence was huge for them. They wrote letters back and forth. It was always so amazing for me to like sit down in one woman's archive and I'm thinking, okay, I'm writing this chapter on Eslanda Robeson. And then I find a letter from Eugenie Ebuitel in Robeson's <laughs> archive, right? Like just- That must've been awesome. It was it was amazing because I had no idea they knew each other, um, you know. And and again, you know, because I'm coming from a from a, a sort of a, a language and literary background, seeing Ibuitel writing in English to Robeson, right, writing in English and in French, and saying, you know, pardon my English, you know, and, and but doing her best to express herself and express that internationalist sort of um, vision that she had for a shared project that they were working on, for me was was amazing because you know I, I talked in the beginning about my own um, process of um, acquiring French citizenship and how language becomes one of those those arenas in which we contest the idea of belonging, right? And so to see women doing that kind of like bilingual work, translating one another's writings becomes another way to translate also their thoughts and ideas across those artificial colonial borders. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, the, the idea of geography and, and space, I think, was was just so embedded in everything that they did because they were thinking in spatial terms in ways that were key to redefining and, you know, reimagining our very ideas of things like nation. So when you think about someone like Paulette Nardal, who is writing as French, as Martinican as Antillian, right, as Caribbean. She's rethinking what it means to be French in ways that France wasn't ready for, right? Mm-hmm. Because France was thinking in very territorial, a very limited territorial sense. But Paulette Nadal was trying to bring together multiple geographies in what she ardently hoped would be a harmonious understanding and vision of Frenchness that was far more expansive than the colonial metropole. Um, there's so many questions that I want to ask you after what you've just said, but I'll start with, I'll stick to geography for a second, which is that, you know, just to ask you the ways that this pro about the ways this project um, works to decenter a historiography of anti-colonialism, anti-imperial movements, meeting places, clearing houses that has, has maybe tended to focus on um big cities in the metropoles and in the, you know, French case on Paris. So yeah, how does the book work to shift our attention away from everything happening in Paris as a kind of meeting place? I think on one hand, um, you know, just the, just the sort of on the surface, the, the very um, sort of basic fact of trying to look at spaces outside of Paris, right? Sure. So, um, you know, when, when I talk about this book to people and be like, well, you know, when I, when I say anti-colonial movements, you know, people are immediately like, oh, Senegal. And I'm like, I don't write about Senegal at all. I'm <laughs> writing about Mali and like Central African Republic, you know, like places that, that were, that, that continue to be marginalized in scholarship today um, because they were marginalized already in the colonial imaginary. So I started mm-hmm. out by saying, you know, just on the basic, on the surface, right, is, is looking at these spaces. But when we kind of go below the surface, right, the idea then is to challenge the colonial idea of value fundamentally. And what I mean by that is that we think about Senegal and Côte d'Ivoire a lot because those were resource-rich 
colonies and territories for France, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking about, you know, cocoa, um, you know, thinking thinking just about the resources that France extracted from these spaces, that then shaped the degree of interaction between a place like Senegal and France, and therefore sh- continues to shape our notion of value in terms of thinking about, you know, just the sheer number or our emphasis on um, writers and thinkers who come out of Senegal, so Leopold Senghor, for example, right? When we move out of that colonial paradigm, when we think about spaces that were already neglected and marginalized in the colonial um, calculation of value in terms of resources, then it challenges how we think about value in terms of who is speaking and whose voice matters, whose voice is of value as well. Um, and so that's what I, I found to be to be a helpful way to think about the spaces that I look at in the book, right? Like when I talk about Central African Republic, you know, or the French Congo, people are like, oh, who was writing from there, right? Um, but you know, the 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 idea is is to is to question how our very field, how our very disciplinary focus continues to be shaped by the colonial histories that we're that we're hopefully trying to challenge and disrupt. Well, along those lines, I mean, the way that the book disrupts a longer term history of um, of anti colonialism you know, from an intellectual history perspective is fascinating to me. Um, and I guess, you know, you brought up a little bit earlier the work of Frederick Cooper and, of course, thinking of um, and reference him in, in the book, of course, you know, Gary Wilder and some of the other authors who've given us a history of negritude, of anti-colonialism, of decolonization, options. There is much in your book that made me think about those works. And you're also disrupting uh, a habit of uh, writing, that, writing that history in a way that really emphasizes the uh, achievements and words and actions of men. Um, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, so <laughs> that of course that, you do. <laughs> right. um, well, let me so let me let me think about how I want to say something about that. Um, okay, <laughs> and, 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 and no, but I, I say I say that because I think the operative question for me there was on what terms am I writing about women? There mm-hmm. were multiple sort of intellectual examples or multiple kinds of precursors for this work. Um, you know, so there, there are folks who write about women as a corrective um, to sort of masculine dominated histories or historical, you know, intellectual histories. There are folks who write about women in terms of inclusion Mm-hmm. So beginning from points of departure of exclusion and marginalization. And I had to try to work out for myself on what terms do I want to write about these women. And ultimately, it seemed to me that the most productive route was to think about the terms on which these women wrote about themselves. Mm-hmm. And they wrote about themselves primarily as participants in a conversation. So Suzanne Cezelle writes an essay and she reuses a sentence that appears in work by Amy Cézère, right? That's a conversation mm-hmm. um, that isn't taking us its point of departure, you know, exclusion, marginalization. And those are realities, right, that we need to grapple with. So this is not to knock those frames of writing about women at all, right? In fact, I build on those frames of writing about women as a kind of a foundation to think about, um, you know, what is most productive in amplifying and hearing their voices. Part of the value of my of or what I hope my book contributes to the field, right? Contributes to the the body of scholarship that you just evoked, right? With works by by um by Gary Wilder, you know, Fred Cooper, uh, Nick Nesbitt, and others, right? Going across um Africa and and the Antilles, is is to is for us to perhaps think a little bit more about the terms on which we write about people whose voices have been muffled or muted in the archives. Um, the, the, the terms on which we, the terms on which we highlight their agency um, and the, the lenses that we ourselves bring to that work. 
Can we talk a little bit, Annette, about the archival sources that you use to get at these women's lives and the range of them, where you had to go to do all of this work, um, your mobility, uh, all of that that went into this project? Yes. Oh, that was honestly um, some of the most exciting, well, the most exciting, I think, aspect for me of working on this project um, were was the places I had to go to find these women, right? Where were the women? Well, they were, <laughs> they were there and they were not. So I'll start by saying, by talking about where they were not, right? There was a lot of loss um, that, that came with working with this project in the sense that so many texts um, that I found references to are lost, lost mm. in terms of were not preserved, um, lost in terms of nobody knows where they are, but we know that they were because they're sort of living memory about them. So something like Suzanne Cezelle's play Yuma, for example, um, no one no one really has a copy of that play anymore, but people mm. remember the play when it was enacted, right, in Fort de France. Um, and there's a recent article that sort of reconstitutes some of the ideas of the play um, by looking at um, reviews of the play um, in its reception after, after it was enacted, um, you know, after its production. So there was just, and it, it's such a heavy feeling of loss to sit in the archives and find a reference to a text that you you know you won't be holding in your hands because no one knows where it is. Mm. Um, but next to that loss sat so much presence. I don't use the word discovery because I I, I don't believe that I discovered anything, right? That word hmm. for me is so tinged. I think Columbus has ruined discovery sure. for everyone for now. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, and, and also because, you know, archivists and librarians do that work, have that knowledge. And, and you know, I, I see myself as working so much more in partnership with them and learning from them about where and how to locate sources, um, you know, than sort of marching bravely into an archive and discovering things all by my lonesome. Um, you know, so so there, there was so much presence in terms of work and text that that were there. But that really hadn't been tapped into much. So I'm thinking, for example, about Eugenie Ebuitel's archive, which is extensive. Mm. Uh, everything from photographs to receipts to letters to um, ID cards, just everything that she had, I think, that was documented um, is preserved, ironically, in Charles de Gaulle's archives, right? So Weird. It's weird, but it's really fascinating to think about where are the women? Well, Eugenie Ibuitel is present as a sub-archive of her husband, Félix Ibuit's archive, oh, which right. is a sub-archive of Charles de Gaulle's archive at the Fondation Charles de Gaulle in Paris, right? So the layers that you uncover, kind of like peeling back that onion, um, mm. there, there were a lot of tears in that process, tears of frustration, um, right? But the layers that you uncover um, to peel back, in, in, that you peel back in order to uncover these stories. Um, so, you know, archives, where I went, I was in Paris. Um, there's a lot that's preserved in Paris, um, in Marseille as well, because... Um, Jeanne Vial was incarcerated in a concentration camp in um, in in Marseille, um, mm. and then in a women's prison in Marseille. And so um, there there are some some documents in Marseille, um, in Martinique, in Aix en Provence, the colonial arch well, the colonial archives, the overseas outremer archives um, in Aix en Provence. Um, for a lot of the 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 women that I write about in Africa, I, I couldn't access archives directly there. And so, you know, their published works and then things that were written about them in the media, um, you know, in the United States and in Europe are the, the places that I could access their, their work and their thought. And that's something that I think about constantly is what that archival work would look like. Um, you know, so outside of Eslanda Robeson's letters um, in the archives in Accra, which I was able to access, you know, what that kind of archival work would look like in spaces where access is a little bit more tricky. Um, it's something that I continue to think about a lot. But the women, the women were everywhere. They were in places I expected them to be, and they were in unexpected places as well. So as you're talking about these women, and as I'm sort of looking over my notes about the different chapters, Annette, I want to ask you. Like what is held by 
Black women. You know, thinking about the women here who in this book who are African from the Caribbean, some of them having, you know, mixed parents, French fathers, African mothers. And even then, as I say that, I think, what does it mean to say French father, African mother? So I don't know. Was it an obvious thing for this book title to be Black Women, How Black Women Transformed uh, Citizenship? And how do you think about the differences between, you know, the women that you that you write about in this book, The Seven, and then, of course, the other women who, you know, are in this book by implication or in other ways, uh, being united by the term Black women and what the differences within that might be regional, um, on a global scale, in terms of race, uh, some of those other kinds of possible divisions or differentiations, I guess, between Black women. Oh, dear. <laughs> you have <asked> question. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> or, oh, yes. <laughs> right, yes, yes and no. Well, so it's, it, was, it was a really, really difficult decision. Um, and mm. not lightly, because, you know, like you're saying, Black Black travels, right? The, the the word, the term, what it signifies, all of those things travel, are translated, um, and, and they metamorphose, right, as they travel mm-hmm. and as they move. I'm thinking, for example, of um, the current conversation right now about capitalizing the B in Black, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, scholarship and public writing, etc. And And so I, I take consolation in the fact that Black is multiple and expansive and complex and that we are, even today as you and I speak, still grappling with something as simple, as seemingly simple as orthography, right? As seemingly simple as capitalization or not. Um, Using Black in this book was a difficult decision because in some ways it doesn't quite travel as well in the Francophone world and particularly in a place like Martinique that I write about, right? Mm. So, um, you know, where women would describe themselves as, you have the, you have a whole spectrum, right? Uh, Métis, mulatres, chabine, et cetera, right? That you have a, mm-hmm. whole, a whole host of terms um, and terms that, for example, were used at the time that Nadal was writing that aren't used anymore today. Um, you know, so it's traveling spatially, but also temporally. Um, ultimately, I settled on Black because even when it was ambiguous, right? Even when the women that I write about claimed it or disavowed it or were sort of hesitant about it, um, they, they ultimately engaged with it as a central way of thinking about their identity, their place, and the world that they were trying to construct. And they engaged with it partly because colonialism, much as it would like to sort of present itself as sort of neutral and right as you read in the beginning from the prologue, French colonialism, particularly as colorblind, right, Mm. was deeply invested in constructing whiteness, right? That whiteness is is a constructed identity as as much as other identities are constructed. Um, and so ultimately the women in this in this book had to grapple with whiteness, um, but also had to grapple with with the descriptor black in terms of how they claimed it, if they claimed it, and how it was foisted upon them when they did not claim it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so, just because it was so central, I decided to go um, to go in that direction and and to to use black as an umbrella term. But I'll give you some examples of of the terms that I I sort of sort of float, floated around, right? Mm-hmm. So I tried like um, African and Antillean, right? So mm-hmm. ge- like geographic as opposed to racial um, markers of identity. Um, I tried black women in the Fr- um, in the French Empire. I tried black women living in and traveling through the French Empire. <laughs> and then your publisher said, no, you can't have that. Because <laughs> exactly, right? someone like Asana really complicates things, right? She's, she's African-American. She's American. Um, <laughs> and is moving through these spaces. So yes, my editor was like, um, 
In and, and through. Yeah. In and through and around and just all, all over the place. So it's an inter- it's an editorial intervention that I appreciate. Yeah. And I can't say that I'm entirely satisfied with, with the result, right? With with my result. There, there, there are things that I don't know if your um if your other guests are are as as um as as open about this, but there are lots of things that I, I remain dissatisfied with in the book, right? Partly because I think um no one book can be definitive. Um, and so that's one of that's one of my areas of dissatisfaction. I continue to think about what does it mean to claim all of these women um, as Black, using Black as an umbrella term, given their own complex relationships to, to the term. While I'm hanging out in the title of the book, let's talk about citizenship. Um, because I think, you know, at some basic level, even, you know, thinking about the prologue, We sort of think we know what we mean when someone says they became a citizen, right? But one of the things that was so fascinating to me about this book and these women writing in all the different spaces that they were and um, thinking about all the different possibilities for the future on the other side of the watershed that was World War II is that claiming citizenship didn't mean the same things for all of these women. And so... Yeah, I wonder if you want to say something about the way the book makes an intervention in the history of, you know, how we think about citizenship, how these women were interrogating what that might even be uh, as a thing to claim, not just the right to vote, but other things as well. How does this book complicate that that word, citizenship? Yeah, citizenship was was so many things for for all of these women. Um, you know, so some of them claimed French citizenship as a way to claim the legal uh, protections, um, right, of of the French state, particularly in the face of colonialism, which which seems like such an ironic move, right? Is to is to claim protection from um, from that very from that very body that that oppresses you but but on the other hand colonial oppression was so multifaceted um, and and far reaching into every element of life that somewhere in a place like Martinique for example the french state almost becomes the guarantor of liberty because um, the local white planter class, right, also represents a colonial force. So colonialism is, right, Martinican um, writers and thinkers are, are looking at colonialism from multiple angles because it's coming at them from multiple angles. And so then citizenship becomes this multifaceted thing, um, which uh, which they hope will allow them um, to to battle colonialism in, in, in its multiple forms. Um, other women disavowed French citizenship, right? So for someone like Abaketa, for example, French citizenship became this, this major obstacle to local grassroots mobilization and organizing. It mm. became a barrier, right? Because for, for someone to, to be a French citizen meant that they could they could vote at that time, right? They could vote for um for a certain a certain group um, or a certain level of um, of political representatives. But they did not have access to, you know, be, be, they could not participate to the same degree in um, local elections. And for Keita, her her space, right, her answer to where were the women were the women in in, in her immediate vicinity, the women right in front of me for her, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so working in areas of rural rural then French Sudan, currently Mali. Um, for her, it meant that French citizenship wasn't that thing that would would give her legal protections. It was that thing that was preventing her from for, from fighting for legal protections for the women around her. Um, you know, so citizenship, I think, because because citizenship is so contested, because citizenship becomes this tool that is used by imperial powers to discipline. Um, mm. to restrict who has access to spaces, um, to deny access to life-saving resources, because citizenship is, 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 is held in this framework of scarcity and denial currently and even then, I think that we tend to think about citizenship as something to be acquired, to be gained, to be, right, to be fought for. And in, and in many ways, those things are all true. 
But in this moment, right, in World War II and right after, there are other ways that we can think of citizenship also as hindrance. Citizenship as hindering other forms of solidarity um, across the Afghan diaspora, for example. So when you start to have differences between, right, um, folks from African colonies and folks from Antillian colonies, right, in terms of citizenship and access to citizenship, that becomes an obstacle to, um, to organizing and to solidarity across space. So I think one of the the contributions that the women in this book make um, is to think about citizenship not only in terms of acquisition and gain, as I do in the prologue, but also in terms of what is lost once someone, you know, acquires. And and acquisition is a a, a fraught term in and of itself, um, you know, but but that which is lost once someone acquires French citizenship Mm -hmm. with all of its demands to assimilation. So, Annette, throughout, you're kind of looking at the ways that, you know, centering Black women as political protagonists in this project means that we get to consider, to think about these women not just having domestic lives that had political resonance, but that they were actually involved in, you know, what we might consider, uh, you know, that kind of narrow definition of politics. Um, But a few of these women are connected to very famous men. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like the difference between um, the women who you were exploring the stories of who were connected to these powerful male figures who we might know more about in the literature or hear more about in the literature and some of these other women that you found? Yeah. So the difference I think um, was on two fronts. One was preservation and the other was legibility. So for women who were connected to famous men, um, their their archives are are preserved, right? The integrity, right? If we if we think in sort of the French linguistic term, uh, right? The integrity of their archive um, is is preserved a lot better because they are subsets of their famous husband's archives. Um, mm. So Ewetel um, and Eslanda Robeson, right? You just sort of have to go to their husband's archives and then there's a, here's the wives subfolder. Um, Suzanne Cézelle is an exception. Um, I, I will not speculate why, because I don't, I don't want to get into, I think, um, troubling sort of hypotheses about her personal relationship with Amy Cézelle, which I think is what accounts for part of the reticence of her family or some of her family members to grant access um, to, you mm-hmm. know, to family documents, et cetera. And because I, I you know, I, I don't ever want anyone's personal life to be a sort of a, a glee, like I don't want to sort of gleefully hold things up as discoveries of my own. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, right. Yeah. But, but Suzanne Cézelle is, is a notable exception to that. Um, but so, you know, the difference is preservation. So you'll notice, right. That um, with folks like, like Robeson, et cetera, I'm able to pull from their letters, um, but with others like uh, Awaketa and André Bluin, I really rely very heavily on their autobiographies right. um, as 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 that primary space where where their their um, their life stories are held. So preservation is one key difference. Legibility is the other. So, you know, everyone kind of has an, an, or it's encouraged to have an elevator pitch, right, about their book. Um, And you sort of have to have your your protagonist, right? Who's going to be the hook, right? So, oh, who are you writing about? I lead with Suzanne Césaire in Francophone spaces, and I lead with Esmonda Rosen in Anglophone spaces, because... Awaketa is far less legible because she isn't really connected to any famous men. The book is organized. Well, it has some, you know, chronological movement from the end of the war, Second World War, up to uh, the epilogue where you talk about the 1960s and 70s. But you're also looking at and organizing the histories and stories of these women from different types of strategies or ideas about citizenship, about the post-war fate of empire, from the question of departmentalization, all the way through to, you know, independence as the goal, national independence as the goal. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about the organization of the book and along the lines of those aims of these women and the visions that they had for citizenship and the future of their homes 
um, and the connections between them. The organization um, is, is, is one of those other sort of points of lingering dissatisfaction for me. Right? So <laughs> the use of a black as an umbrella term bugs me and the linearity of the organization also bugs me. Right. So initially the way that the book was organized, um, it was organized pretty much along these lines, but um, I had the chapter on André Bluin um, after the chapter on Awaketa. And um, uh, uh, one of the reviewers pointed out that the the discussion about métissage in Jeanne Vial's work um, is a much better sort of lead-in and connector to André Bluin's work, and so to sort of invert um, the order. And again, that was a necessary intervention that I thought was was uh, very helpful for you know for for framing um, or for thinking about the organization of the book. And so I implemented that suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the result, right, the byproduct of that was that it now gave the sense of linearity, right, that one moves from um, sort of colonialism through departmentalization to independence as the sort of ultimate goal, right? So we end on the very sort of yeah. pro-independence narrative of Awaketa. And that troubles me because there was, there was so little that was linear. I mean, on one hand, Certainly, that was one um, one competing framework or one one existing vision for um, for anti colonialism, but it wasn't the only vision for what right an anti colonial world would look like. Um, and and we see that in the writings of of you know someone like um, like Paulette Nardal, for example, who is heavily invested in in departmentalization and in a French um, in French citizenship in the Antilles. Um, so so it's a lingering sense of dissatisfaction for me, but. I think ultimately that it's also a generative kind of organization because it allows me to focus on um, connections, right? Which was mm-hmm. which was the, the reviewer's initial impetus for that suggestion is to think about how we move from Jeanne Vial to André Bluin and thinking about the experience and anti-colonial work of you know folks who are who self-describe as mixed race African women in this mm-hmm. moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and so rather than to bracket that out, is to, is to interweave that, that discussion and that, that experience of race in a colonial setting throughout multiple chapters. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of the thinking behind the organization. Um, the other organizational point, I think, that, that I do like, so, you know, I'm not entirely dissatisfied with everything about the book. I um, liked the way it was organized. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I do like that, that that third chapter that serves as a sort of a, a bridge that brings together Ibuitel and Jean Vial, mm. um, you know, to, so, so, to, not, to not sort of replay that strict separation um, between the Antilles and and um, French Antilles, uh, French African colonies, right? Um, but also to not to not assume that the only point of connector is the fact of connection is the fact of their colonization by France. So right. to look at the way that Ibuetel and Jeanne Vial work together and the terms on which they come together um, as as black women in in the French Senate, I think is um is an interesting sort of organizational. I like to think about that chapter as a bridge, right? So if we right. think in spatial or architectural terms, as a bridge, um, you know, that that highlights or emphasizes connections that are already there, that the women themselves were already making. Yeah, I mean, and I think, uh, you know, in that last chapter before the epilogue where you talk about Aslanda Robeson, that, that I just want to linger on for for a second here for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it sort of moves away from that linearity in a way. I mean, maybe we could describe it as another kind of linear, which is like after we get to independence, then we get to the idea of thinking of it in terms of re, like hemispheric thinking and the global South and these cross connections and this transnational black feminism. So I wonder if, does that chapter help you with your, your, your discomfort around the organization of the book? But also I wanted to ask you about, um, it's not the only place that it comes up in the book, but, but it certainly does and, and is in the, the title of that chapter, Transnational Black Feminism in the Global South, the, or the you know, post colon of that, that chapter title. Feminism, you know, black feminism, you know, asking you about black women earlier, but now, <laughs> now can I ask you about um, 
you know, how we think about this or how you think about this as a history of feminism. So I'll answer the question about how this book ends with a, a, a small preview of how a subsequent book begins, right? Mm-hmm. So one of my next book projects that I'm currently working on is 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 on French Antillean feminisms. Oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> right, right. And and that comes out of of what's happening for me in this book is is my my um is how how comfortable I was thinking about um black women writers, black women's thought, particularly Antillean women's thought, um, and that my comfort with feminism only appears when I talk about Eslanda Robeson, because there mm-hmm. is a strong intellectual tradition of Black feminism in the United States, right? right. I have no qualms about ascribing a certain kind of um, emerging feminist ethos or thoughts to Eslanda Robeson in ways that when I'm writing this book, I am not yet able to do for folks like Nardal um, or Suzanne Cesaire. Right. And as I'm thinking about that now, right, my primary question is why? Where, what is the source, or to think in spatial terms, where is the source of my discomfort with claiming a French Antillean feminism or French Caribbean feminism? And so, and so what I, what I want to do now is to think about what that intellectual tradition looks like. What does feminist thought and feminist activism look like in um, in Martinique and Guadeloupe? And and you know I'm using terms seemingly interchangeably like Antillean and French Caribbean, but I, I understand them in very different ways. And so mm-hmm. for this, this current project um, on feminism, I want to think specifically about French Caribbean feminisms, plural. Um, right. Because, because again, you have that sort of nexus, right, of of French citizenship, but also Caribbean, right, cultural citizenship. So I want to think about how Antillean feminists are in conversation with feminists in other parts of the Caribbean region, right, be, beyond the Francophone. Um, and I'm starting from like the 19th century, right. So I'm thinking right after oh, the abolition okay. of slavery. To what degree can we already begin to think about a sort of a proto-feminist um, thought in that moment? So the degree to which this this current book is about feminism, right? I'm I'm drawing on black a uh, black and black feminist intellectual tradition very heavily in terms of the way I read the work that these women are doing. Um, but I'm currently trying to rethink the degree to which um, it's possible to trace that intellectual black feminist intellectual tradition already in these spaces without sort of applying an American lens to those spaces um, sort of retroactively. The epilogue of the book of Reimagining Liberation is on the 60s and 70s. So I'm just trying to get a sense, as you were talking about this new project, I was just trying to get a sense of what the overlaps will be between, like chronologically, you said you go back to the 19th century, but do you feel like some of the material in this book qualifies or are you looking at women... Um, in Antillean women and Caribbean women who identified explicitly as feminist in this new project? Um, so I'm, I'm not looking at women who identified explicitly as feminist because I found that term to be so charged. I mean, it's charged everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there, are many, there are many ways that, um, that Antillean women disavow or some Antillean women writers and thinkers. I'm thinking of someone like Marie Condé, for example, has, has long disavowed the, the, the sort of label um, of feminist when it's affixed to her, um, even though her, her, her novels are very clearly feminist um, because of the particular definition of feminism that she brings to those conversations and because of the ways that she feels that those ideas of feminism exclude, um, you know, black women and women of color from the Antilles. And so um, what, what I, what I want to try to think about is what definition of feminism might emerge organically from looking at Antillian women's writings and thoughts from the 19th century um, to the present moment, um, you know, and, 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 and what relationship have these women thinkers held um, mm. with the term feminist um, or feminism? Mm. Um, 
um, and I'm thinking about feminism as as multiple things, right? So as as movement, as as descriptor, as identity, as praxis, as thought, as activism. Um, you know, so again, looking at different genres of writing, just the, the way that I do in in the present book. Um, so to to a degree, um, I think that some of the women in the present book will likely make a cameo. <laughs> um, <laughs> But this, I think that this is also a great opportunity for me to be able to delve much more deeply into the the thought and work of women that I was only able to talk about briefly in Rematching Liberation. So I'm thinking about someone like Jeanne, um, Jeanne Leroux, for example, mm-hmm. right, who gets like maybe a paragraph, if that, in Rematching Liberation, but whose feminist organization that she founded towards the end of World War II is, is still existing today, right? It exists still today in Martinique. Um, so just the longevity of that, that intellectual genealogy, I think, is something that we have to grapple with when we think about whether feminism is applicable or not not exist or not, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the French in the French Caribbean. Um, so, so yeah, there there are ways that I think that that project might be picking up to some degree from where this project leaves off, even if it begins much more, um, it, even if its its timeline is earlier to some degree than rematching liberation. Well, I'm I'm excited to uh, to see that whenever whenever you end up sharing it with me, I call, I call dibs, (laughs) you know, Annette, when we started talking, I asked you how you were doing um, in this time. And we're in this moment of global protest and activism, particularly in the United States where you are, but also in France, focused on issues of racial inequality, police brutality, all of these things. And I guess I wonder, what do you think about the, the, the resonance of the book right now in June, 2020? So when the book was coming out, I, I I wondered a lot about what contribution it would make into, I guess, it, that it was coming into a world. And I was wondering what contribution it would make to that world. Mm. But I hadn't considered that the world into which it was coming would be so radically altered from the world in which we lived when I was writing the book. Yeah. Um, and so just this past weekend, um, I, I, I did an interview. I had a conversation with an artist based in Brussels um, for the series that they're doing on Black women's voices um, in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions she asked me was, you know, the, the statue of Leopold has been pulled down um, in Brussels. Do I think that a statue of André Bluin should replace it? And I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> this is this is a this is a heavy this is a heavy question." But 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 within that question, I heard the question that I think we're currently right working through right now is is our anxieties about what is the future that we're trying to build, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciate um, this this quote from Anne McClintock's *Imperial Leathers*. Um, where she she describes history as as a series of fabulations, right? As mm-hmm. a series of inventions, and I'm going to probably butcher the quote from memory, right? But she says um, she writes that not not just any invention will do, for it is the future, not the past, that is at stake in the contest for which memories will survive. And I think that right now we're in a moment of of intense anxiety about the futures that we're trying to build even as we are seeing those futures encapsulated and embodied and enshrined in inanimate objects like statues. Mm. Um, and so having, having this book come out now, the world into which it has come is a world that is, that is marked by upheaval, mm. in ways that feel unprecedented, but also in ways that are not at all, right? Because the women who who I talk about in the book, their writings came out into a world that was marked by a world war, right? Um, and so I think my, my hope right now for maybe wh- how I hope this book will be present in those conversations is, is to 
is to allow us to think about the kinds of futures that women in our past have already imagined, Hmm. what elements of those futures resonate with us today, um, but also what we can learn from the elements of those futures that do not resonate with us today, right? Um, and, and And so I think that maybe I'm thinking primarily about time um, in this current moment, time as urgency, um, time as disrupted, as mm. cyclical, as repetitive, but also time in, te- in terms of direction, right? What direction um, do the seven women of this book offer us? Um, and that's, that's, I think, what I hope this book will contribute to our ongoing conversation. Well, I got so much, Annette, out of reading it, just illuminated so much for me. And I'm just really grateful for the book and for your time, for you joining me to talk about it today. Well, thank you so much for having me and for making this conversation possible. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.